We also need to look at the fact that the climate, the environment, it's all gonna be affected. And actually this bill was targeted to the Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion, right? So let's tell them, bond themselves, we don't really care. We're not gonna listen to them no more. But who I'm bringing back is Claire from Extinction Rebellion! They didn't expect us to be together, didn't they? In fact, they tried to separate us, didn't they? Listen, all day, climate justice matters because black people get affected by the environment. So definitely when we speak, we say it with our chest, Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Thank you, love. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for coming today. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to all the tireless organizers and coalition builders, all the people who are here in good conscience. We've come together and it is vital that we continue to build our movements together at this time. We need to show selfless dedication to overcoming our differences because we are living now in extraordinary times. Britain is sliding into authoritarianism and an old trick in the classic playbook of power is to use crises and a society in shock and grief to force changes that take away people's freedom. This is a moment of extreme overreach by our government. Yet we have come here to sit together and say it is not a crime to care. It is not a crime to grieve. It is not a crime to want our sisters and our daughters and our family and friends to be safe on the streets. It is not a crime to want a future for our children. It is not a crime to care. The Police Crimes and Sentencing Bill is an opportunist crackdown on our freedom of speech and civil liberties. But it is not only this bill. Judicial review is under threat. The Spy Corps Bill will offer power and impunity to agents with grave implications for our human family all over the world as well as here in the UK. And my good friend Tim Crossland a former government barrister who led the litigation against the expansion of Heathrow Airport is facing a trial behind closed doors in the Supreme Court following an act of civil disobedience. The highest court in our land has been captured by the corporate state and it claims that there is no need for the UK to consider its Paris climate commitments in extending new plans for infrastructure. The commitment to global ecological vandalism constitutes racism from the UK on a vast global scale and it will continue to break down our climate and we know that the majority of our brothers and sisters around the world will face the fiercest and most immediate impacts. And it's quite obvious to even the most casual observer that this government is drunk on power it is drunk on exceptionalism, on self-importance, on entitlement. Who do they think they are? That they can divide and rule us, remove our rights and freedoms while they shove them billions of dollars of money into the greedy mouths of their friends, denying nurses and healthcare workers the dignity that they deserve, denying that institutional racism exists, 
denigrating and destroying the lives of the most marginalised, including the traveller communities, and acting as if women don't deserve the right to safety or to publicly grieve and mourn. Denying us... Denying us the right to protest about all of these things. Those people in Westminster believe that they should be left alone to do exactly as they please. But here we are together in Parliament Square once again and also in over 40 towns and cities the length and breadth of this country to serve notice on this government. We won't stand meekly by and watch ex-tobacco lobbyists and serial liars take this country down a path of racism, misogyny and hatred. We will not stand meekly and watch as our only home is destroyed in climate breakdown. We remove our consent. We refuse to comply. These times are calling us to pull together. We will organise, we will march, we will unite and we will rebel. Because totalitarianism feeds off loneliness and isolation and that is how they want to keep us. So here in Parliament Square we are the opposite of lonely and isolated citizens. We are here in love and care and kindness and friendship and solidarity and that is what terrifies those people behind the curtains of power and love and care and kindness is why we will all win this together thank you extinction rebellion has done so much all the time in two years they've been around they've really changed things and actually they supported in helping us. We're really, really proud of what they do. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Welcome to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend. And you were just listening to the legendary words of exiles Claire Farrell introduced by Marvina Newton from United for Black Lives, and they were speaking against the Police, Crime, Sentences and Courts Bill in Parliament Square on April the 3rd, at an event organised by the Kill the Bill Coalition. Sometimes with XR you get a kind of frisson that we are watching history in the making, and I don't know about you, but Claire's words definitely gave me that tingle. We have a very interesting and I think important podcast today about the oppressive legislation that Priti Patel is trying to foist on us and what that legislation means in both practical terms for those organising protests but also in the wider sense of democracy. And finally we're going to go a bit more abstract with the writer and XR member Jay Griffiths and ask about whether these political moves can be associated with fascism and is that really where we could be heading? The bill does many things besides attack our right to protest. 
It also takes away the rights of traveller communities and includes provisions on trespass. But it's a protest legislation that is geared to limiting the powers of both Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion. And as Claire says at the beginning of this, this is a land grab. And Priti Patel's change of approach is not just in legislation, it's also in the change of policing style. And we saw the effects of that so sadly at the recent vigils to honour the life of Sarah Everard. In a moment, we'll turn to an interview with Johnny Oates, a Lib Dem peer and spokesman on the environment with a history of green activism. Of course, XR are non-political, and so this doesn't mean that we advocate that people vote Lib Dem, but Lord Oates is a spokesperson on the environment and signed up to the CEE bills, which aims to take XR's three demands into British law. So as far as I'm concerned, he's a good guy. My first question to Lord Oates was about his own political history. Well, I first got involved in what was then the Liberal Party, that's how old I am, back in the late 1980s. And I worked as an intern for Simon Hughes, who held many portfolios in the party, but in particular, he was holding the environment portfolio at the time. And that was a a time when there was quite a focus on on climate. 1987, that would have been 1987-88. And that really ignited my, my interest, although my mother had always been a real conservationist, as it were, very interested in ecology and nature. So I I had that in my mind. I got involved in politics in the Liberal Party and I became a councillor, local councillor, and I was an activist for a long time campaigning on green issues. And eventually I had a job as the director of communications for the party in the lead up to the 2010 election. And I subsequently became the chief of staff to Nick Clegg as deputy prime minister. And following the coalition government, I became a member of the House of Lords. I worked very closely with Ed Davey, who was a climate secretary in the coalition government, one of our two climate secretaries with Chris Hume. And he was a, a absolute passionate advocate of green issues. But one of the real problems about the coalition government was the Treasury. It was both George Osborne personally, who was extremely hostile to the green agenda and frustrated a lot of efforts, but it was also institutional. And I think it remains institutional in the Treasury. But a huge amount was achieved by uh, Ed as climate secretary. uh, And we would be in a much worse situation otherwise. I think the damage that was done by George Osborne cannot be underestimated. In particular, for example, after the end of the coalition government, he scrapped a number of policies that had been put in place, not least the net zero homes policy, which frankly means over a million homes have been built since then, which are going to have to be retrofitted. They're being built right now and they have to be retrofitted. uh, It's extraordinary, yes. But today we're talking about the PCSC bill. Would you mind talking us through what that is and then let's have a chat about what's happened around it. So it's the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Uh, it's It's a big piece of legislation which covers a whole range of issues. The particular issues that have caused greatest concern are those on around public order and also specifically around the statues and memorials. And those are two that have have got the most coverage, I think, so far. 
And the government's been pretty clear that those are aimed at XR and the BLM protests in particular. I think that's right, absolutely. And even if they didn't say it, it would be very clear what they were trying to do. I mean, the narrative, I think, from XR's point of view is that we have tried very much to stick to COVID regulations where we've had a protest, which has meant that the protests that we've had have been kind of broken up after they reach a sort of certain capacity. But also, most of the last year has been pretty quiet as far as protest goes, because we've been being respectful. You know, we, we think that thinking of people's health and being good citizens is, is important. But it feels like in the interim, the government has quite liked the quietness and is now going for a kind of land grab so that we don't go back to the same kind of protesting scenario. Do you see it that way or, or do you have a different point of view? No, I think I broadly see it that way. I think one of the real problems with the coronavirus legislation that, that was put in place at the beginning of the pandemic was that it didn't explicitly protect the right to protest in a way that was respectful of social distancing rules, etc. I think the police in some circumstances have acted absolutely wrongly and the Lib Dems have been very critical in particular of the recent policing of the protest around the Sarah Everard vigil. Having said that, I also think they've been put in a very, very difficult position because they have been having to make decisions which really police forces shouldn't be having to make. Such as? So, well, about interpreting um, very unclear rules about whether people can protest. I think they can under the European Convention on Human Rights in any case. But there hasn't been clarity for them. And I think there should have been clarity from government and in law that notwithstanding the provisions taken to tackle the pandemic, the right to protest in a responsible manner was explicitly protected. I think that should have happened at the beginning. But I think this is much wider. I mean, when I first saw aspects of this bill, particularly the aspects which relate to noisy protests, as it were, I must say, I thought it was a parody. I I found it impossible to believe. Would you mind telling us uh, what, from your point of view, are, as far as protests go, the main objections to the bill? Well, I, I think the main objection is we don't need more laws on protests, more restrictive laws on protests. That's the fundamental thing. And indeed, my understanding of it is that the report that was commissioned into the policing of public protests found that the vast majority of police officers, public order police officers who were asked about this outside of the Metropolitan Police uh, did not feel that there was a need for new powers. They felt there was a need for resources to be able to enforce the existing powers they had, but they didn't feel there was any need for new powers. So my starting point was I don't think there's any need for more public order policing powers. Maybe some tidying up at the edges, but generally, if anything, uh, we need to be much more careful about protecting the rights to protest. So the key elements of the bill are, first of all, that they give the police powers to impose conditions on protests, whether they're marches or they're static protests. It's not clear what those conditions are, and that's not set out in the bill. Frankly, the biggest problem is, firstly, ludicrously, 
uh, one of the basis on which police can object is if the noise caused by a protest and a procession uh, could be said to cause uh, unease to people uh, in the near vicinity. Well, I've never been involved in a protest that doesn't involve noise. Uh, that's clearly a part of public protest. It's not clear to me who it is, who the organisations are, who would feel that they were being disrupted, because that's one of the other basis in the bill, that if an organisation feels that the no noise would be unreasonably disruptive to that organisation, the police can prevent it. So we've not been given any examples of those organisations. XR, and I was a member of the group organising it, did a protest in Tufton Street, and we walked up and down with uh, like a samba band, um, and one very disgruntled I think lawyer came out of his apartment uh, in his dressing gown complaining about the noise. So it does seem quite XRE. And we and we were there to say, you know, the Tufton Street lot keep very quiet about what they do and we were there to make a noise to say we know what you're doing and we're here and we're going to draw draw attention to it. But as you say, the noise side of it is kind of ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, what are the police going to do? Are they going to go and measure noise levels? And are they going to say, you have to keep it below such and such a noise level? Are we going to have, like, conductors who are kind of raising and lowering the the volume of the uh, chanting of the crowd? It's kind of extraordinary. Well, the truth is that we don't know. We don't know the answer to any of these questions because these issues aren't defined at all in the bill. And what is much more worrying is that the bill grants a power to the Secretary of State under secondary legislation, which is basically legislation that goes through Parliament with much less scrutiny. And for example, in the House of Lords is not amendable. You can either reject it or not. But she will be able to define what these various issues in, in the bill are. It seems to me absolutely wrong for any bill to be brought through to Parliament which cannot define the issues that it is taking powers over. And, you know, certainly in the House of Lords, but my colleagues in the Commons as well, will be, will, will be objecting to that in the strongest terms. And I know cross-party in the House of Lords, this will have a very, very rough ride. The right to protest is, is recognised by most people and certainly has been across all parties traditionally, as absolutely fundamental in a democracy. Now, of course, the Conservatives have always been more conservative on these issues, and Liberals have been more liberal and expensive. But that general principle has always been uh, retained. And I, I, I hope um, that quite a number of Conservative MPs who do take civil liberties seriously will join with other parties in opposing this because it is completely out with the tradition of the UK. And as you say, democracy has to be about more than simply elections every four or five years. And public protest is key to that. Now, another aspect of the bill is where protests can take place and the police being able to control that, isn't there? And, and I think there's more rules for the areas around Parliament. Would you mind running us through that? Well, there was a specific issue that arose during the XR protests, in fact, around Parliament, of people not being able to access Parliament, uh, members of Parliament. And the particular concern, and it was a concern that I, I shared, I'll be honest with you, was about disabled members of Parliament who couldn't, 
who couldn't get there on foot. And and I would have much preferred that an arrangement had been made whereby XR could have allowed such people to go through. This bill gives specific powers around Parliament and also gives the powers uh, to define other areas on the basis that Parliament may have to move out of its current premises at some point. But in essence, it gives specific powers to the police to remove protests in these places. The key, though, to me is that the police have the powers at present, if they want to exercise them, to remove people who are preventing people um, coming into Parliament. And they could do that. And that is that, that is their legal power now. So I, I, I think it's one of these things where it's a, a sort of solution in search of, of a problem. No, I don't think it was a deliberate, it, it wasn't a deliberate tactic, obviously. It was, it was a, an outcome of the fact that the roads were blocked. And I think there's issues about communication to in, ensure that those people could have got in. But as I say, in any event, the police did have the power to take enforcement action if they needed it. So I repeat that I think it is a, a solution in search of a problem. It's also, it's, it seems very ironic to us in XR who have worked so hard on our non-violent protests that such a hard backlash is coming to us. I mean, we believe that there is a climate emergency going on that isn't being taken enough account of and we're trying to draw attention to that in strong terms but we never are in the police's faces shouting at them you know uh, we have de-escalation techniques we train rebels uh, so that our protests are disruptive definitely but as as peaceful as possible while there's an there's an emergency going on and uh, it does seem so ironic that this backlash has happened. What, what I'd say about this, and, and I said it in Parliament on the day when XR was holding its protest, I said that, you know, for all those people in Parliament who wanted to condemn XR, the reason that XR were outside was because of the failure of people inside to recognise the nature of the climate and ecological emergency and to act. And and that seems the essential thing to me. And in these circumstances, well, I there are tactics of XR that I have disagreed with and will will do. And I'm sure there are politics of mine you would equally disagree with. But that's fine. But overall, the right of people to protest is critical, and it's critical particularly on issues that are you know an existential threat. To, to life on this planet. I mean, the, that, that, that's what we're talking about. And we have that on one side, and we have inconvenience, principally, on the other. And uh, it's been weighed up completely wrongly. And this bill is a complete travesty, in my view, and it must be resisted, because we know that in order to achieve the kind of changes that are, are, are needed, it does need organisations like XR to, to bring them to attention. And people like Lord Denham, who a Tory, you know, has said that the work of XR helps the CCC. Well, I was very conscious a couple of years ago, I think it was shortly before XR protests started. I read a piece in The Times and it was reporting on uh, a report from the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change which had warned of the, the catastrophic consequences if we continued on the 
uh, path that we're currently on. And that appeared on something like page five of the Times, I think. It was actually reasonably prominent, and that was quite a change from, from the past. But I remember thinking at the time, if you believe this report, and you clearly do because you're putting it in your newspaper, this should be on the front page. And not only should it be on the front page today, it should be on the front page every day until we've got a grip on it. And it didn't get onto the uh, front page until the XR protests started. And then we did get some front page attention. And I think that's that's critical. So as I say, while I may on occasion uh, reserve the right to disagree with particular tactics of XR, in terms of its fundamental objective, and certainly of all the XR people who, who I know, I, I know their motivation. I know why they're doing what they're doing. And, and I know why they need to do it. And it's principally because of the failure of parliament and politics to do what it should be doing. Yes, even even in this year, a cop year, when the government is claiming that it's doing so much. So let us now go to the process of getting a bill through parliament. Would you mind explaining what the usual stages are and where this bill is in that process? A bill is introduced to parliament it has a first reading, which is literally the, the title of the bill is read out and then it's ordered to be printed. Once it's printed, it then has a second reading, which is a general debate when people talk about the overall principles of, of the bill itself. After that, in the House of Commons, it goes into the committee stage, which is where you have detailed scrutiny of the bill line by line and where people can put amendments and suggest changes. In the House of Commons, that is a committee, uh, a small committee of MPs, which is representative of the strengths of MPs in the House of Commons. So it's not everybody. Uh, Once the amendments have been made or or not made, they're then reported to the House of Commons. That's called the report stage. And that's on the floor of the House and everybody can take part in that. And that's where amendments finally get agreed or disagreed. And then it goes to third reading, which is which is really a formality. And then it goes to the House of Lords. So I have to say I'm I'm not as um, attuned to the the Commons as, as I am to the Lords. Obviously, my understanding is that it's due to go into committee stage in in the Commons. It will then after Parliament the the new session of Parliament starts uh, in May at some point, probably in June, I suspect it will come to the Lords. Now, I can go into the detail of the Lords where there's there's quite a lot more scrutiny, um, but that may bore your listeners, so I will leave that to your discretion. <laughs> Obviously, in civil society, there's been a backlash against this bill and people like Liberty, Amnesty, lots of newspaper columnists have come out against it as draconian. How does it feel? I mean, obviously, you're conducting your business by Zoom, probably. In the, you know, the Lords that you're in contact with, how how is it feeling in the House of Lords? I think it'll have a very rough ride in the House of Lords. I think people are very conscious of the civil liberties aspects of the bill and its uh, impingement on them in, in the Lords. There's quite a lot of lawyers and ex-judges who I think will have a particular concern. And the sort of brand of conservatives in the House of Lords 
tends to be more on the liberal side, I would suggest, of the Conservative Party than on the authoritarian side. So I think it'll have a hard time in the Lords. And of course, in the House of Lords, the government doesn't have a majority. And so I would imagine that it will be amended heavily in the House of Lords. Now, the real issue, though, will come down to how many Conservative MPs in the House of Commons are prepared to defy their whip and vote against the government. Or at least, even if they're not prepared to do that, how many of them are prepared to threaten the government that they will do that unless there are changes to the bill. Priti Patel, I don't think, as Home Secretary, is the sort of character who finds it easy to back down from an issue once she's, even if she realises that it's the wrong thing to do. So I think this is going to be a long, hard struggle. But I think that everybody on any side of politics, actually whether you're from the left or from the right, should be very worried about this. Because as you point out, you know, people who want to protest in favour of Brexit or other issues which are dear to to the right. Pro-fox hunting, say. (laughs) Pro-fox hunting, exactly. They will be as impacted. And this is not a tool that you should put in the hands of any government uh, or police force, whether it is a Conservative government, Labour government, Liberal government, or even, dare I say it, whether a Green government. Those powers shouldn't be there. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Rebellion. We're now going to change tone, zoom out, and look at the issues raised by the bill in terms of a general lurch of politics towards authoritarianism. We're going to hear the views of author Jay Griffiths on the American Libertarian Playbook and also look back to other historical movements that might give us a context for events today. Jay's an amazing writer, the author of the book Wild. She's also an exile activist. And today she's reading from her most recent book, Why Rebel. If libertarianism has a mythic model, it is Deus Invictus, the god unbound, who loathes any tether, shackle or constraint. Deus Invictus lies behind the libertarian refusal to be shackled by cuts in carbon emissions, as behind their demand to be free to fly, their obsession with anti-natural technology. The Deus Invictus complex drives unfettered capitalism and the unregulated industry that allows some to live like gods by making others live like cattle. Today I want to talk about a book that you've just released. What What's that book? It's a book called Why Rebel? And the clue is in the title. Um, and <laughs> it's a, a wide look at some of the multifold reasons for rebellion. And it's political, it's cultural, it's about art and metaphor, it's about poetry. It's also about indigenous rights, shamanism. It's um, the kind of through strand of the whole thing is really to say that the situation we're in now is such a clear emergency that it has to be responded to not um, as a choice but as a you know it's incumbent on us all my argument as any sensible person's argument is this nature is not a hobby this is the life on which we depend 
The chapter I want to talk to you about today is the, is the second one in the book. And in it, you are looking at kind of today's politics, uh, libertarianism. I think we've all heard the word libertarianism used, thrown around the place. Uh, but what does it really mean? Mm, mm, that's a good question. I think it's one of those political terms which kind of covers an awful lot of territory. For some people, it can be considered almost like a kind of right-wing anarchy. And there can be a kind of, you know, a stance in which um, you could certainly say that elements of punk and anarchism could actually step towards libertarianism. However, that's not... That's not what I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is the kind of libertarianism which we've been getting increasingly in the far right, the alt-right, the alternative right in America and indeed in the UK. This kind of group which essentially sees that its politics are founded on things that seem very attractive, like kind of, you know, the liberty in libertarianism, the kind of sense of freedom, the sense of, um, you know, like without bounds. I mean, these things are very attractive in the sense of what is wild. In the political context, though, is that what libertarians are doing is they're basically saying there should be no laws to safeguard the environment, no laws to safeguard workers' rights. That People who are vulnerable and um, are simply, you know, snowflakes. It's the libertarians who came out with these kind of, you know, these really revolting mockery of um, sensitivity. So calling people snowflakes for their sensitivity, the kind of, you know, the mockery of SJWs, the social justice warriors and things like that, where, you know, for, for, for most people, it's kind of that language, for example, which is PC, is that that, sh that shouldn't be mocked. What PC actually really means is language which has respect and kindness in it. Um, but the whole kind of libertarian flow is a kind of attack on all sorts of cultural and linguistic things from a right-wing perspective. Yes, that's very interesting. Uh, free speech, when you just hear the expression kind of banded around, seems to be to do with democracy. But actually, it isn't really that, is it? So how, how do those ideas of free speech work? It often seems to be to cover hate speech. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, one of the things about the, the whole libertarian movement in America and in the UK is that it is to promote hate speech to promote things like um, Holocaust denial, to promote climate denial, to basically abuse people in a way that's racist and sexist. And then no matter what is said to say, oh, you can't shut me up because this is about free speech. And what I find really interesting is that it does silence people, but it silences those to whom the hatred is targeted. Because when you've been the victim of a kind of, you know, a libertarian stalking mission, you feel silenced. Um, and the kind of, you know, the emphasis on the right to hate speech for libertarians does include things like the defense of child pornography. I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting to me is that they would defend that on the grounds of freedom of speech. What I would say is that this, you know, that obviously you know, freedom of speech is incredibly precious. It is one freedom, though, amongst many. There are also things like the freedom to live without hatred. The kind of, you know, that when it comes to something like the climate crisis is that you could say, okay, so freedom of expression means that people can 
deny it and disqualify people who speak with expertise. They can mock, they can undermine all the rest of it. And they can say it doesn't matter because it's, you know, because it's freedom of speech and that that's an overriding right. And I would say it is a right, but it is not an overriding right. The right to life, for example, is actually more important. The right to be told the truth, that's a right. Yeah. So we've started this conversation because we're concerned about democracy, um, in particular um, for XR in the context of the police crime sentencing and courts bill. Uh, But we've come on to climate denial. How does climate denial fit into this picture? On on the one hand, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with it. And yet it is those people who seem to be at the centre of the pushback against the climate science. Um, How do you understand that, Jay? I I think it's um, I think it's part it's part of a very kind of deft cultural movement which i would compare to italian futurism in the in 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 the past um which sounds a bit like this is kind of you know an arcane choice of of um of comparisons but the thing about it is that contemporary libertarianism is trying to do is to say that we are free from the bounds of things we want to break the constraints so we want to break the constraints of kindness for example into hate speech that libertarianism says it wants it wants not to be bound to tell the truth we speak about that idea it is it it is like we're tethered by certain things um they they act to contain a person in a way which in a society is absolutely vital and one of the things with libertarianism is to deny all the things that they regard as constraints. So the constraint to tell the truth, the constraints of justice, the um, the constraints of a respectful way of speaking to other people. So what I'm looking at in my comparison with Italian futurism is that that was an art movement that was highly, highly political and was fascistic. What they supported was hate speech, what they supported was what they called a bruitistic way of communicating. It was kind of noise for noise's sake. It was rhetoric. Both the Italian futurists and contemporary libertarians are completely obsessed with technology and flight and the future. And it's as if this sense of being unbound, they want to not be constrained and tethered to this earth. So what they're looking at is kind of the flights of aeroplanes, the kind of the right to fly, the basically then also the contempt for people who would say, but hold on a minute, this kind of endless right to fly is extremely damaging for climate but what they're doing is it's almost like that this is more than just an actual preference for being able to fly because i think if you asked an awful lot of people they'd say yeah you know all other things being equal if it didn't damage the climate yeah i'd love to fly more i'd love to you know but what is happening in libertarianism is that they're using it as some the most extraordinary kind of symbol really for um a an entire psychological stance which is 
they feel they are allowed to do anything to fly where they want um to and also to um to use the idea of a technological futurism it's like not for nothing the italians futurist their idea of technology was so bound up in an off earth idea it was a hatred they hated the earth they kind of referred to it as this kind of vile muddy place and it was also very misogynistic their their attitude and they in their kind of you know hygienic which is a word with heavy political loading now but in that quotes a hygienic kind of like off earth um hyper masculine role of you know the airman which fits perfectly into this libertarian idea of the singularity revulsion of sexism that they're putting together so it sounds what i i really feel i feel aware that it sounds as if it's all sorts of different topics what i'm trying to do is to say there is a there there is an exact pattern in these dots you can draw the dots and they form a very precise pattern and it reminds me of something you don't necessarily associate with the alt-right but the uh, those people who want to do colonies um, on other planets. <laughs> and it always bewilders me because uh, we've got a very beautiful planet here. Why would you want to go and live on Mars where there's nothing? Now, those ideas are very interesting and very contemporary. But what would you say to people who say, well, one set of ideas is to do with the states and the other is the Italian fascism that uh, led to the uh, led to the Second World War? What has that got to do with the UK now? Well, what it's got to do with the UK is that we have a prime minister who's um, an absolutely obsessive liar. He's somebody that feels no compunction about being restrained by the court. So, you know, his proroguing of parliament, his threats to break international law with the Brexit talks and the Brexit legislations. This is really serious. And the kind of, you know, and, and in the sense that he's put in place people like Dominic Cummings, who thankfully is gone, but Dominic Cummings was absolutely key to bringing in people who were frank eugenicists and people who were so racist that, you know, that I think even the Daily Mile was kind of balking at, um, was balking at them. Yes. And, uh, I mean, you and I uh, were both at the Tufton Street action as well. And it seems to me that part of the way that the, the, this administration here in the UK is looking at politics kind of um, harks back to Trump and and to the way and, and to the American system. So uh, the that pork barrel idea that your friends support you when you're trying to get into power, and then when you get in, you reward them by contra- throwing contracts around. I mean, there's going to be, I think, a lot of scandal for years to come about the um, COVID contracts that were put into place and, and and going forward. I mean, I think there's just been a small win by, I think it's open democracy, but because they were selling our NHS data to American companies. There was no discussion in public. It was just behind the scenes. Our data was, was being um, put out to people uh, uh, associated with Trump. You know, these things obviously aren't in the public interest. Nevertheless, for me, it's a little bit heartening 
that the climate's kind of become so anti-Trump. Uh, I, I mean, Trump has gone and COVID has brought the NHS very close to British hearts and minds. And so I think the project to sell off the NHS has at least had to be put a bit on hold or it has to be done in a sort of uh, covert way. So I think that we on, you know, who don't agree with these processes, we also, we have a fighting chance of coming back, particularly, as you say, now Dominic Cummings has gone. It doesn't feel like uh, Boris Johnson's has any coherency about him. He Now, he is a sort of trickster figure, isn't he? I think, weren't you at university with him? You saw young Boris Johnson at play, didn't you? Yes, yes, yes. I Yes, I had that pleasure. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> and the thing that I found really shocking about him was that he was really into politics. He was very into right-wing politics. But it was like everything was a joke and he had absolutely no idea that um, the, of the reality of people's lived experience behind every um, political fact. And in a sense, when you're 18, 19, it's kind of, well, yeah, I think... Probably a lot of people, it was all, you know, everything is a joke. You don't, you don't take seriously what's not in your knowledge. But what I found shocking about him and his, the whole group that he was involved in was the sense that um, they knew they wanted to go into politics and they absolutely knew that they were never going to try to find out um, the, the, the kind of, you know, the deeper ordinary realities because what they wanted was power. and But power as a game, it was just a game to him. And I found that very, I actually found it really upsetting. And it's, and, it, and I, what I saw then is what I see now. Uh, and so finally, Jay, are there any lessons that we can learn by comparing that time in Italy uh, with what's going on today? Yes, um, take it seriously. That I think that the you know this exact thing of um, Johnson acting like a comical buffoon and Trump and Steve Bannon and they're they're stealing a lot of the tricks to clothes and what I want to say is no this isn't funny and we really have to take it seriously and that some of the things which are coming into play now like the um, policing bill this is unbelievably serious this is you know this is absolutely directly what what fascism does and i do understand that there's you know there's a good reason for being very careful about using the f word that f word however i think that there is also a real problem with assuming that somehow it couldn't happen again and assuming that that surely people are never ever going to go back to any kind of fascism again but it was January this year, when we could see America absolutely on the on on the knife edge, and for all of those reasons, a refusal to tell the truth and a delight in lying, and in fact, a public who, in one sense, seemed to want to be lied to in a very specific way, which is wanting to be entertained more than wanting to be informed. 
And of course, it's like everyone wants to be entertained. I do. I love jokes. I love good films. <laughs> absolutely love them. But when it comes to political things, I don't really want to be entertained. I just want to be told the truth. Thank you to all our guests and to the team who worked on this episode, which has been a labour, but I'm very proud of. And thank you for listening and downloading this episode of the Extinction Rebellion podcast. If you've enjoyed it, why not subscribe to the podcast or share it in your social media or even share it with someone who is XR curious, because as you know, we really need to grow the movement. So enjoy the regen now because we need to hit the streets in the summer and make a noise whether Pretty Patel likes it or not. By the way, a group of podcasters are campaigning for a climate category so that people can find all the green podcasts in one place. It's targeting Apple because they set the industry standard and the deadline is Earth Day, which is the 22nd of April. The link will be in the information to the side of the podcast. Thank you again for listening to the Extinction Rebellion podcast. I'm Jessica Townsend. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Extinction rebellion.